Today's Bible reading is going to come from Genesis chapter 3, entitled The Fall. Genesis chapter 3. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat fruit from it. All the days of your life. I will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Thanks, Wendy. <clears throat> Morning, everyone.
Happy Mother's Day to all the mums and other mums. We had a great time yesterday afternoon at the afternoon tea for Bloom Asia. And they had a raffle. Some people won some prizes. One of the wives of one of our pastors <laughs> entered that raffle and won a prize. Another Baptist pastor's wife also entered. She didn't win anything. <clears throat> It was rigged. <laughs> it was a great afternoon. I think it's the biggest one we've had. 140, 150 people? 156. It was very, very good. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, that we didn't be together. Thank you for this day where we as a nation give thanks to those ladies that have significant impact in the majority of families. Bless them. And bless us, Lord, as we look at your word and seek to learn from it and be shaped by it that we might follow Jesus more closely. We pray and ask for his sake in his name. And everybody said... This passage contains two great truths. I'll share those in closing prayer. In chapter 3, Genesis, verse 16, firstly it says, Your desire to the wife, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. All the men said, Amen. <laughs> Brief men. <laughs> That's what it says right there. Your husband. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's the first truth for us to grit. Second one is in verse 17, the following verse. When God turns to Adam to judge him, he says, because you listen to your wife. <laughs> That's what it says. Let's close in prayer. I think it's very clear. You can nearly do anything with scripture, can't you? You take it out of context and twist it and make things out of it. That's not the bad point. That's a point anyway. That's what Satan does, as we'll learn in a minute. There was a woman, her name was Rhonda, she went shopping. <laughs> and she bought a dress that she knew that we couldn't, uh, she couldn't afford. When she got home, her husband, Daryl, said to her, Why? Why did you do it? She said, I just couldn't help it. The, the devil tempted me. I said to her, he said to her, <laughs> why didn't you say, get behind me, Satan? She said, I did. He just leaned over my shoulder and whispered in my ear, my dear, that dress looks magnificent from back here. <laughs> so I had to buy it, she said. Obviously, that wasn't Rhonda. Oh, I won't finish that sentence. Since the serpent whispered to Eve, all of us in the human race have struggled with temptation and sin. It's true, isn't it? 
We've been plunged into the deep end of the pool and we can't reach the bottom. We're swimming in this fallen world surrounded by all sorts of influences through the eye gate, through the ear gate, out of even our own hearts, the Bible says, that we are desperately wicked. And even as followers of the Lord Jesus, and even as followers of the Lord Jesus walking closely with him, that doesn't make us immune and it doesn't minimise temptation in our lives. We live in a world where we are going to be tempted. And so it's helpful from this very significant chapter. In fact, this is the only chapter and it's the only book of all religious books that indicates for us where our sin or where this fallen world comes from. No other religion gives us this truth. Other religions will talk about things that maybe once were great and now they're bad, but they don't have a cause, they don't know why. Well, this chapter reveals to us how do we find ourselves in this situation. And it reveals to us the pattern that Satan used then and he continues to use now because even if you're without sin, Jesus, Adam and Eve, without sin, we're still approached by the evil one to be tempted by him to fall into sin. And Adam and Eve, of course, fell and the Lord Jesus didn't. Here we are, and Satan's been using that, that pattern. If it worked on Adam and Eve when they were sinless, then surely this similar pattern will work on us who are fallen, who are sinful. So it's worthwhile... Oops. I've got to say click, click. It's truth. I broke it. Derek. I'm going to do what you did in the first service. I'll just say click, see what happens. The evil one's pattern uh, in tempting Eve is that he takes the scriptures and he distorts them. And all I really wanted to say then is the pattern that he does here is the pattern he does us now, uses now. And so when Paul says we are not ignorant of his schemes, that's what he's referring to. We can, through studying the scriptures, learn his methodology because he continues to do it. He continues because it works so well. Doesn't work all the time, but gee, works a lot of the time. So the Bible says in verse one, uh, the snake was crafty or more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Crafty, the Hebrew word means that he was clever which in its different context could be cunning or crafty or sly and deceptive. Certainly the New Testament reveals to us that in this serpent or in this manifestation of this creature is none other than the devil, the evil one, Satan, fallen angelic being who comes to steal, kill and destroy. He's crafty. It's interesting that Eve is talking to a snake and she's not scared, she's not repulsed, she's not even seems to be surprised that the animal is talking to her. Maybe the animals talk in the Garden of Eden. Some people draw that conclusion. Well, I doubt it. But for whatever reason, she's living in this perfect idyllic world and everything is in harmony and peace and I guess she rather naively just was not shocked or put off or I would assume that she should have perhaps been warned, but anyway, she wasn't. And notice also, Satan came to her uh, in a reasonably attractive form. Some people find serpents attractive. <clears throat> didn't appear as a dragon. He certainly didn't turn up in red underwear with a pitchfork and tails and horns and stuff. Question, was Eve alone? Well, 
at the beginning of it reads like he's talking just to her and there's no one else around. But certainly by the time you get to verse 6, when she gets to the tree, uh, he is with her. Because she gives some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. So is he there all the time? Or did he come later? Don't know. Just imagine, and I'm reading into it a bit. If Satan approached Eve when she was alone, that's certainly one of his methodologies. He'll try and get us alone. It's when Joseph was alone that Potiphar's wife came and tempted him. It's when you're alone that you can be also vulnerable to the evil one's attacks. While it's true, it may not be true of coming out of this passage. It's ambiguous. So what does he do when he approaches Eve? See you guys. He challenges God's word. He impugns God's character. And he denies the consequences to their sin. He challenges God's word. Did God say, really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Just by asking the question is an invitation not only to engage in a dialogue, but there's the assumption. It's slip, uh, slipping in an implication, which is that God's word is open and subject to our opinions and to our approval. Did God really say that? It's like, and you believe it? It's a suggestion. This is what he does. He comes to us and he'll do the same thing. He will distort scripture. Uh, he'll make us ask questions. And it's okay to ask questions about scripture, but only in terms of getting clarification, not distortion. Whereas he is deliberately leaving some stuff out, undermining God's generosity, because God doesn't say you may eat from any tree in the garden. God says you may freely eat from any tree in the garden. And he removes the word freely, just as Eve will in a moment. He impugns God's character. In fact, when in the passage, if you notice it carefully, when Satan and Eve talk about God, they use just simply the word Elohim, God. But when the, later on in the passage, when the Lord comes, verse 8, the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. As Pastor Charlie pointed out last week, in Genesis 1, it's Elohim. In Genesis chapter 2, it becomes Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. Yahweh Elohim is the covenant name. It's the relationship name. It's the family name that you're, we're his children. But Elohim is simply his, um, an emphasis upon his power. He's the creator, almost the impersonal one. You know, it's sovereign and powerful, but not personal. And Satan is using that term for God, Elohim. Is that deliberate or is that the only word that he can use? Because he certainly does not have a personal relationship with the divine creator. But the suggestion could also be that Satan wants to imply to her and to us that God is just like a force that made us. He's not our personal heavenly father who comes and walks and talks with us. Because it's different. If you're disobeying a distant, abstract force, that's different to disobeying someone who is personal in relationship. That truth may be there. But he goes on to say, verse 4, um, you will certainly not die. You will not certainly die, the serpent says to the woman. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, and you'll know good and evil. He undermines God's word. He impugns God's character. He's implying that God is not good. God has another motivation. 
God knows that if you eat from that tree, you're going to become like him. You'll get a benefit and a blessing to you, and then you'll be like him, and you'll know stuff that he doesn't want you to know. He's impugning God's character, that God is not good. Same thing, still doesn't. And he denies the certainty of judgment. You won't die. God says we will certainly die. No, no, you won't. He's lying. Um, and he, you could, I could imagine the evil one reasoning with Eve in terms of it's a piece of fruit. It's going to be a minor infraction, a minor misdemeanor. And you're going to get the death penalty? Are you kidding? You see, impugning God's character again. And it's interesting to notice Eve's progression as she works her way through this conversation with this evil one. And there is changes going on in her thinking. Certainly uh, there's stuff happening emotionally. And now if you read verse 6 and following, you will see that she saw the tree was good for food. Good for food. That's a physical benefit to her. It's good for food. Well, all the other trees were good for food as well, but this one, she saw this tree was good for food. She also saw this tree was a delight to the eyes, aesthetically appealing. So this is appealing to her baser senses emotionally, to her affections. And she saw the tree was desirable to make one wise. Well, that comes from its name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it's egotistically satisfying or appealing to her. It's physically beneficial, good for food. Aesthetically pleasurable, delight to the eyes. Egotistically satisfying because it's desirable to make one wise. She was listening to the creature, not to the creator. The creator was very clear. Don't, you can eat from every tree in the garden freely. Enjoy yourself. But don't eat from that one tree in the middle of the garden. The day you eat of that, you will surely die. And she got to the point where she wasn't quite believing it. I guess you could argue, well, she didn't hear God say it. She heard Adam repeat it to her. Maybe. The problem is she was listening to re her own reasoning, her own thinking processes, and not to God. We do the same thing when we get tempted and when we fall into sin. She's rationalising and justifying it. And by this stage... She's in the middle of the garden, she's looking at, she's close to the tree, and this stage Adam is certainly with her. And she reaches out and she takes from that tree, she eats it. I can imagine him watching her, Jude and I, in fall over dead, and then she gives it to him, and he eats it. They both know what was wrong. They both did what was wrong. They both know that God said, don't do it. There was a warning attached. They ignored all of that because a creature had suggested to them that God's word wasn't true or trustworthy. God's character is not reliable. He doesn't really care about you. He's tricking you. The evil one. In the initial results, certainly, well, maybe it did seem beneficial. Their eyes were opened, it says. They did come to know stuff they didn't know before. They didn't die immediately. Yeah, but just wait a little while because eventually the guilt came the shame, verse 7, and then follows the alienation from each other, but most importantly, from their relationship with God. You go into chapter 4, then there is murder and more alienation. Cain leaves the family and heads off. There is hatred and pain and division and sweat and death, just like God said. Now note this, Adam and Eve did not die that day. God said, the day you eat of it, you will die. Well, they didn't, did they? Well, they didn't die physically that day. 
But they did die spiritually that day. Just like God said. The day you eat of it, you'll be separated. That's what death means. Separated from me. Separated from one another. But there is another one in the chapter. The chapter gets to it, verse 22 and following, where there is another death, which is eternal death. If they ate from the tree of life, then they would live forever. God is, expresses his concern. So God does keep his word. What God says is true. We just need to work hard at understanding the exact truth of what God is saying to it. And not, like so many, understand or excuse that God's delays in his judgment and not his denials of judgment. He is merciful and patient, but he will judge. He says he will, and he will. He will work it out in his timetable and according to his perfect timing. God might strike slow, some theologian said, but he strikes surely. Adam and Eve did the wrong thing. They knew about it immediately. And because we are their descendants, we inherit their sinful nature. What does God do? Well, God comes graciously seeking. We have all sinned. We are all guilty outside of Christ. We are also all under condemnation. How did they deal with their guilt, their shame? Well, when they became aware of it, they tried to cover it up, physically cover it up. But when God came, you know, calling in the afternoon, they also ran away and hid. So we cover it up. We avoid it, we run away, and we hide. We still do the same thing with shame. And then when we get caught out or confronted, we often do what they did. We'll blame others. Proverbs 28.13 says, Those who cover their sin will not prosper, but those who confess it and forsake it will obtain mercy. Covering it is not wise, but confessing it, admitting it, and forsaking it, saying it's wrong and I won't do it again, will obtain mercy. Opens the way for God to restore you to him. And it's marvellous. God didn't come to them and chew them out. God didn't come to them and curse everything, make it a black earth in the process. God didn't come to them with an attitude of get out and don't come back. He does remove them. And he doesn't allow them to come back. But you'll see that's not just an act of punishment. That's also an act of grace, as we'll come to in a moment. God seeks out the guilty. That's us. And they were guilty. Their eyes were opened. They're exposed now to one another. We've done the wrong thing. How did they know? Because their conscience was now activated. Their conscience was now going, guilty, guilty. You ever had a dream? As a kid, I'm sure you did. I did. It's a frightening dream. You dream that you are running down the street and you haven't got any pants on. Or you've gone to school and you suddenly realise you're only half-dressed. You had that dream? We've all had that dream. <clears throat> Some are prepared to admit it, that's all. And then when you wake up, I go, oh, thank goodness, it's just a dream. Well, for Adam and Eve, when they woke up, it wasn't a dream. They were. It's not that they were naked. They were naked before. It's they were self-conscious. They became aware of themselves, and that's what sin does. It makes us self-focused. And their solution, well, is to hide, make fig leaves, cover it up, and pretend it didn't happen and run away. Guilt impacted their relationship with one another and certainly in terms of their response to God. In fact, when God comes to them 
Adam says to God, um, you know, God, well, God comes to Adam and says this wonderful question, where are you? I love this question. I thought about that this week. God comes to Adam. God knows where he is. He's hiding behind a tree. Adam, where are you? Where are you? Why is God asking the question? You ever had friends come to your place who haven't visited you before the first time they're coming and they get lost on the way? You ever had that experience? Seeing if you're still here. And so they ring you. What do you ask them? Why? Because you know the way to your place. And so you say to them, tell me where you are and I'll give you directions on how to get here. That's what God is saying to Adam. Where are you? Let me know because I know where you need to be and I can help you. That's really what's behind this question. Where are you? Come out. Um, Come back. That's what God's doing. It's a wonderful uh, question, I think. God doesn't come shouting and yelling or lecturing. You know, how could you? How dare you? Doesn't do any of that. Nor does he ignore the sin. He's going to deal with it. But in fact, God asks questions in such a way to draw out a confession. Who told you you were naked? Well, his own conscience told him. Follow-up question. Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat? Because Adam had said, I heard you walking in in the evening and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Adam says, because I was naked. Wrong answer. He was naked every other time. Not the issue. I was afraid because I sinned. I was afraid because I disobeyed. That's the correct answer. Adam, where are you? Did you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? I told you not to eat. What does he do? He should go, yep. He doesn't. What does he do? The woman that you gave to be with me. (laughs) In other words, it's her fault. And indirectly, it's your fault. If you didn't put her here, and in fact, if you didn't put that stupid tree in the middle of the garden, I wouldn't have eaten it. Not my fault. But eventually, Adam gets to the point, you see, of saying, and I ate. That's what God wants. He wants you to get to the point of honest confession, admitting it. The woman you gave to be with me, and yes, I did, I ate. Good, that's excellent, because what God wants to do is draw a confession out, because then that'll open the way for him to work in our lives. Then God turns to the woman and says, what is it, Eve, that you have done? What does she do? She turns to the serpent, who didn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) Boom, boom. And so then she says, and I ate. She confesses as well, which is where God wants us to get to, to openly, honestly confess and to admit, not to hide, not to put on our good works or religiosity, the fig leaves of our coverings, not to do any of that, but to admit it, confess it. If you hide it, you won't prosper. If you confess and forsake it, you'll obtain mercy. You'll find God at work in your life. And that's what God does here in this chapter. God provides a way for them to come back into relationship with him. 
It's a beautiful way that we'll come to in a moment. Before we get to it, I want you to point out to you this balance, both in the scriptures but also in our understanding of God, because scripture is filled with these, uh, not opposite, but balancing truths. God is one, God is triune. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. God is a God who is gracious and loving and merciful. He's also God who is holy and just. And some of us go to one end or the other, that we find ourselves more focused at one end or the other. There are some people who emphasize God is gracious, that he overlooks sin, that he's patient with us. And these people are very proud to be tolerant, accepting and forgiving. Their favorite verse is, let those who are without sin cast the first stone. Patience, tolerance, accepting, forgiving, gentle. On the other hand, there are other people who think God is just and that he cannot stand or tolerate sin and that these people tend to be stern and strict and judgmental and sometimes self-righteous and they think they're being like God. And their favourite verse is, prepare to meet your God or it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the truth is... This group over here emphasizes God's love and grace, but they've lost sight of the balancing truth of his holiness and justice. And this group over here has firmly grasped God as a holy, just God, but they've neglected his mercy, his patience and goodness to us. The truth is God is that, he's both. He has this, he is both just and loving, he is holy and merciful, he is righteous and gracious. God didn't come to Adam and Eve and strike them dead on the spot. Didn't do that. But he does in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Nor did God say to Adam and Eve, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. Doesn't dismiss it or ignore it. When God comes to deal with sin, he will also deal with sin and restore the sinner. There will be consequences to our sin which he will not remove. Often. He'll let us, the law of sowing and reaping will have effect in our life, but he does deliver us from the penalty of sin, but not always from the pain of it. And that's the truth that we need to also grasp from this chapter, that there are consequences to our sin. We can't sin alone. When we sin, it has consequences for us personally, but also for others around us. It's also interesting to observe the consequences for the woman and the consequences for the man. They relate to their point of origin. Where does she come from? Out of the side of man. Well, her consequences are going to be in terms of her relationship with him. Where does he come from? The dirt of the ground. So his consequences of his sin is going to have an impact upon his relationship with the ground. This is where we get to those, oh, we'll get to them in a minute. Notice what God says firstly to the serpent. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly, eat dust all the days of your life. Probably, this is an interpretation, but verse 14 is God referring to the serpent. And verse 15 is God referring to Satan, the spiritual being behind it. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, your seed and hers. He will crush you on the head, you will strike him on the heel. It's God's judgment on the evil one, banning him to a life of frustration and ultimate defeat. And Adam and Eve are listening to this. 
This is said in their presence. And verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed is ultimately the first mention, it's a prophetic mention of the gospel. He, singular, Jesus, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel or bruise his heel. It's a forward-looking reference to God coming into our world in the person of Jesus, of God defeating the evil one and paying the penalty for our sin. It's a wonderful promise that takes a lot more time than I can give it right now. And then to the woman, God says, I will increase your pain. Not give you pain, increase your pain. It'll be more severe when you're having children. With painful labour, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, amen. And he will rule over you, double amen. What does that mean? Uh, Commentators are divided. And there are two views and there's truth in both views. Your desire will be for your husband in a positive sense. You will be romantically, sexually attracted towards him. Your desire will be for your husband. Even though through having sex and getting pregnant and having children, it's going to be a painful experience, your desire will still be to have sex with your husband, to be attracted to him. Could be that. And there are certainly other references in Scripture that go that way. Or it could be a negative sense. In the very next chapter, chapter 4 and verse 7, it talks about sin having a desire for you. It's to dominate. That her desire will be for you, that she will want to boss you around and dominate you. Anybody got any experience of that? But he will rule over you. In other words, God is saying, there's now going to be, instead of perfect harmony in the garden, of man and woman walking in close relationship together, there's now tension. She'll want to be in charge and he want to be in charge and it's... It's the result of the fall. This passage is not saying that it's okay for men to dominate women. It is saying that where men dominate women, it's the result of sin. It's the curse of this broken world. Men are not to dominate women. Men are to be loving towards their wives. Wives are not to dominate their husbands. Wives are not meant to dominate their husbands. I wasn't sure if you were listening or not. Uh, she doesn't dominate wives are to submit to their husbands there's to be this nice balancing sharing together in a marriage relationship and as you follow Jesus that's one of the truths that he'll work out in your life but now because of her sin there is now this tension in their relationship or this unusualness it's because of sin godly women not to dominate husbands godly husbands and not to dominate their wives What about the man? Well, as I pointed out to you, God says, because you listen to your wife. So number one, don't listen to your wife. The Bible clearly says that. Not. What God is contrasting is, because you listen to your wife and not to me, because you put her words more important than my words, that's the point. You should listen to your wife. But if she starts saying things to you that are contrary to God's word, you shouldn't listen. And vice versa, wives, you should listen to your husband. But if he starts saying things to you that are contrary to God's word, well, you shouldn't listen. You shouldn't receive it. You obey God. Because you listen to your wife and you you ate from the fruit of which I commanded you, don't eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil now. There was toil beforehand. There was work in the garden. 
God had already warned him. God, in fact, had said to him, he puts him in the garden and he says, you're there to guard it and to till it. To guard it? Where are you going to guard it from? Well, because there's an enemy about. God already warned him. Anyway, painful toil now. You'll eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you. Eat the plants. Sweat of your brow. You'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Since you were taken from it, dust you are to dust you will return. Then note this. There are consequences to sin that we've just outlined pretty quickly. What did Adam hear? What did Adam hear God saying? Adam heard God talking to his wife about childbearing, and she's not even pregnant, about giving birth to children. Spoke about a desire, whether it's positively or negatively, of her for him or to dominate him. Spoke about Adam labouring and spoke about Adam eventually dying. But he also heard what God said about there's coming a promised seed of the woman who will crush the tempter the evil one there's a coming battle and there'll be victory so what does adam do he names his wife what does he call his wife which means life giver doesn't call it grim reaper bringer of death calls her eve mother of all living god's not finished with us yet we may have died spiritually there's going to be a separation and a, and a difference in the relationship but we still have we're still going to live we're going to have kids and i'm going to work and eventually we are going to die eventually calls it eve it's a statement of faith god taking adam, adam taking god at his word and god responds to adam's faith adam's doing that what does god do god covers their sin but notice the context. God says, the man has now become like one of us. Who's the us? Well, I always read that as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Not in this state, not in this sinful state of rebellion and shame and guilt. He mustn't be allowed to do that. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So God is going to get to the point of removing him. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He made skin. Well, God could go like that and make skins. Doesn't say so, but I think. In the Garden of Eden, God took an innocent animal, slit its throat, blood pours out, Adam and Eve are watching. It's by the shedding of blood of an innocent substitute that you will be covered. The beginning of animal sacrifice. That which Adam and Eve will go on and pass on to their children and other generations as you read through Genesis. It's God picturesquely demonstrating the gospel that we all need to be covered. You either cover yourselves with your own righteousness, your own good works, fig leaves, or you'll be covered with the skin of an innocent substitute, the righteousness of Jesus, who will die on your behalf. And then God says, it's not good that he can still be here and reach out and live forever in this sinful state. So God expels him, removes him, takes him out of the garden, puts an angel cherubim there so that he can't return. There is this separation in the relationship. 
But it's not just judgment, it's also grace. Because God wants to ultimately restore the couple. So what Jesus says, John 11, he says, whoever believe, he's the resurrection and life, whoever believes in him, though he die, yet will he live. Live eternally. Live right with God. And the only way that can happen is, of course, through the Lord Jesus. But it's all back here, all in Genesis chapter 3. Well, what's our defence against the evil one? Well, Satan is the one who wants to challenge the authority of God's word and impugn God's character. He denies the consequences of sin in our life. We're forewarned. God is the one who comes to us and seeks us out to restore the guilty. He wants us to honestly confess, admit it, and then that provides a way. God can then deal and work out in our lives his grace as well as his justice. There are consequences for our sin, but he will cover and protect us. Oh, what can we do? Well, we can pray, like in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. We can steer clear. Eve and Adam should have stayed away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle. Steer clear if it's a temptation, a place that you can identify with. We should accept God's truth, God's word and God's boundaries. What God says should affirm God's character. With whatever is happening in your life, God is good, he is righteous, he is fair. I'm better off believing him regardless of what I think, what I feel, what others say, what everybody else might say. What does God say? And then ultimately, of course, it's he's in charge. Submit to him. James 4, 7 summarises it the best. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Just for a time, but he'll flee. Submit to God. That's what I invite you to do now, to submit your life to his sovereign rule and hand. Let him be your Lord. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord God, Heavenly Father, your word is true and your character is kind. You are holy and righteous, and merciful and good. You made us in your image and though we have sinned and rebelled against you, you have been at work to restore us and will ultimately one day restore creation, bringing in a new heavens and a new earth. Lord, help us to receive the forgiveness that you have available for us. Help us to admit our sin, to humble ourselves, confess, to open the way for you to work in our lives, to restore us. Continue to work in our lives and Help give us wisdom, Lord, that we might make good and appropriate choices each day. We know the evil one or his team is going to tempt us, protect us, deliver us from the evil one. And may your name and may your honour be manifest in our lives as we journey with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.